Hello and welcome to the DME podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by DME, the podcast booking platform. Whether you're a podcaster or an aspiring guest, the DME app is a perfect platform for you to get booked and manage your podcast bookings. I'm your host, Sukhair, the founder of DME, and on this podcast we'll be discussing the latest news and views in tech, the ins and outs of entrepreneurship, and even dipping our toes into the adrenaline-filled world of mixed martial arts. On this week's podcast, we're speaking with Tamandra Harkness. Tamandra is a comedian turned writer and journalist who has written extensively on the use of big data in her book, Big Data, Does Size Really Matter? and explores the impacts of data on society in her latest book, Technology Isn't the Problem. This was an informative conversation with a smart and insightful guest. I really hope you enjoy it. Amanda Arkness, welcome to the DME podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I'm one of our first guests, but like the ghost. Mm, <laughs> that is exciting. I know. Do I get a badge? We get an award. We'll send one through the post. Just <laughs> don't wait for us. You might have to pay for packaging, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. So, your bio describes as a writer, presenter, and lapsed comedian. So, that's an interesting phrase, but we'll come back to that one at the end. So, just a little bit about your background. When you're an author and you're kind of concentrate on the tech world uh what kind of drove your in in your past career kind of took you down that route it was it was a kind of unusual route because i know a lot of people that started off in sciences or maths or data and then went into communication Mm -hmm. but i slightly went the other way i was actually doing stand-up comedy and then was getting a bit bored with the same old subjects and met a friend of mine who was also a stand-up comedian at a meeting at the Royal Society yeah. where I discovered she was an actual scientist until we decided we'd do some comedy about science. And then about the same time, maybe a bit later, I started get, you know, just remembering really mm. how much I'd enjoyed maths at school and just started studying maths again for fun. So I finished up doing a whole degree in the Hope University. Oh, and so that kind of fed into me doing a lot of stuff about science and tech and mathematics and how it relates to society. So I'm still not, you know, I scraped 2-2 with the Open University, so I'm still not the world's greatest statistician. But I do understand the basic principles mm-hmm. of it. But what I'm really interested in is where kind of technology and society intersect and how society shapes technology and technology shapes society as Oh, that's really interesting. So when did you kind of first come to what stage of your life were you kind of at that? Was that, were you doing comedy for the last 15, 20 years and you've got the last 10 years come oh, let me just... I been, to... Well, I mean, this was ages ago. So this was, this was the end of the last <laughs> century. Uh, and and I was doing the comedy then and I probably, I probably did it for maybe five or six years. I was just about making a living from it. Right. Um, and then... And so I was kind of bored with doing the same subject matter as everybody. It was a bit, you know, what the, what, you know, drink, drugs, differences between men and women, dogs and cats. And of course, ironically, as I realized that much later on, I ended up doing shows about those topics, but from a scientific point of view, uh, which is kind of ironic, but but just you began to think, actually, there's a whole lot of more interesting ways to look at the world. Mm-hmm. And if you if I bring those into the comedy, then it, the comedy just becomes more interesting. Yeah. But then I was also doing journalism and looking at things a bit more seriously that way. And the two things kind of went on in parallel. 
Okay, so how did you kind of use the the technology to inform your your journalism and your writing? I think it was that, actually, I can remember what it was. There was a period about 15 years ago now, maybe, in the early early 21st century. (laughs) Honestly, I feel really ancient now. uh, When suddenly all the newspapers got really interested in statistics and there were, there were statistics and graphs everywhere and infographics and like the Guardian and these very colourful pie charts and everything. And everyone I knew got really excited about statistics. And this was when I was starting to study maths. I thought, well, this is weird because I like maths, right? So I like this stuff. But I know for a fact that most of you people hate maths. <laughs> and if I try and talk to you about maths, your eyes glaze over. So why are you suddenly so excited about statistics? I thought there's obviously something going on here mm-hmm. where society is looking for something like they're looking for answers, looking for something that looks very definite. They're looking for a way to predict an unpredictable future. And if you give it two decimal points, like two numbers after the decimal point, then somehow it's more convincing. Right. And then that started to kind of fold over into people talking about data. And everyone was suddenly really interested in data. And I thought again, I thought, well, you know, I'm really interested in this from a nerdy point of view. I, I get really excited about the way you can find relationships between numbers and use that to understand something new. Yeah. But again, I know that most of you guys out there, if I actually tried to talk maths to you, you'd run a mile. <laughs> so is this is this just some kind of weird society fetishizing data and numbers? Hmm. Or is there something actually great, new and exciting about how we can learn from numbers? And that was when I really started to so is that the genesis of uh, big data does size matter it is yes well spotted that was exactly it yeah so so i started digging into it and then thinking well i think it's a bit of both i think Mm. there is a kind of social fetishization of data as if and somebody described it to me as an oracle like people think big data is an oracle it's going to answer all the big questions there we go there's when i speak it in but we'll come back to that (laughs) (laughs) and then uh but then at the same time actually there are a lot of really new and exciting things mm. we can do with it. And and the way that computers can process data and now stuff that we talk about as artificial intelligence, and yeah. although how intelligent it is, is a question. Exactly. <laughs> but but certainly in terms of kind of automated processing and just the capacity to process data on a scale that the human mind can't mm. get hold of, genuinely does have a lot of really exciting opportunities with it. So I think both things are happening. Okay. So what was kind of some of the, the themes that kind of you, drew, you kind of got out of the research into the big data book? Well, some of it was about what you can do with it and what potential is. And I, I managed to, I got a backronym, which is any self, well, any self-respecting author knows you need to kind of be able to pin down your whole thesis into some very concise, like, and so... So, I've never heard that word. I want to put oh, that okay. Word. Well, in that case, I tell you what, the only thing anyone's going to remember from this podcast episode is what a backronym is. If yeah. I do so, I give talks, and it's like that's the only thing people take away. Backronym is where you want an acronym mm-hmm. and you manage to reverse engineer it so that so that it's the word that you wanted to end up with. Uh, so I managed to basically turn data into an acronym for uh, diverse or different or dimensions and that all those things kind of mean the same thing in terms of data that you bring together different data sets from different sources and you combine them yeah and then ask a new question okay that's 
the people who collected the data originally weren't asking. Right. So that's that. That I think is genuinely exciting. And my my favourite definition of that was a brain scientist called Professor Paul Matthews. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed him for the book, I said, I must be very excited about all the data you get in brain scans, you know, huge data, masses of data. And he said, well, that's all right. He said, but that's just large data. What I'm really excited about is when you take those brain scans and you combine it with different sources. So mm. in his case, it was patients' medical records, as well as their brain scans, and postcodes where the patients had lived, and the weather records from the postcodes where they had lived. And he put them all together and he wanted to ask a new question, which was, is there a relationship between the hours of sunshine that patients had and the progression of their multiple sclerosis? Because that was what he was studying. Oh, wow. And and it seems from the research which I've looked at since that there probably is, actually. And that was how he was doing. So he said that's for him when you get different data sources and put them together and ask a new question. Yeah. That for him is big data. So I just totally nicked that definition. Anyway, so that's not difficult. So the D is different or diverse or dimensions, if you want to be technical. The A is um, the, it's, oh, oh, I can't remember now. It's the, I hope you can edit this bit out. I, I can't remember. I have back on it. There's dimension, automatic. Sorry, it's automatic. It's because we do so many things now. So computers, data is automatically collected. T is for time mm -hmm. because, again, because it's collected in real time, you can project forward yeah. in time and make predictions. And then the last day is AI because it's that ability of artificial scare quotes intelligence yeah. that um, that enables us to, to to get meaning from it. Yeah, so I mean, the AI bit, you know, another conversation, <laughs> born on its own, the intelligence, is it, is it just a, the processing speed of the data as opposed to the actual intelligence it's generating? Because I'm maybe picking old school computing, you get to the same answer if you just had enough time. Picking <laughs> yeah, enough computing. Well... I don't know. I think, I mean, the thing that I think in relation to data, I think the thing that AI is really good at is pattern spotting mm -hmm. and that it can do that on a scale that humans can't because yeah. it can ingest more data and more well, more dimensions. Yes. Um, and that what I, that's what I think it is really good at. I think rudimentarily, that's the kind of basis of what, the, what it is. It's essentially, I've got such a large data set that I'm learning from. There's a large language learning models are going, right, okay, I... Yeah. I see the word the T H E the right. Okay, what comes after the, the cat? Is that <laughs> the, the, the. Oh, yeah. right. Look how intelligent this is. Yeah, because <laughs> it just by that after the another two million times it's product proceeds cat after the cat proceeds sat on. Except that's my rudimentary understanding. I'm not a, a techie or a developer, but by no, well, that, no, that is basically it. I mean, it's probabilistic. That's mm -hmm. that. I'm, I'm with I. I've been the LLMs will put back the calls of AI because people think it can do things it can't. Mm -hmm. Because it's not intelligent. It doesn't know what it doesn't know what the words mean in the sense that how they relate to anything in the real world. Yeah. It doesn't have a real world. All it has is a massive pile of language which it's ingested from things that humans have produced. Yeah. And all it's saying is probabilistically across the whole of everything I've ever read, yes, this word is going to be followed by that word. Yeah, so this is the interesting bit because I said, Oh, it's it's generating this new stuff, but it's not creating anything new. It's just recreating what already exists. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the interesting bit. I think messing around with some of these AI models at the moment, one of the flaws is if you're trying to get it to create some kind of graphical presentation of something, and say, oh, great, it's done the nice little logo there or whatever it is, and you just say, oh, can you just change the shape of the L a little bit? It will just make the O a little bit smaller. You can't do it. It just doesn't bring me a picture. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
it doesn't understand the context of what it's produced. Yes. Because it doesn't exist anywhere else in itself, so it hasn't learned of what it produced. No, exactly. So it's quite interesting. But I think we'll probably get around that and they'll like quickly go, right, okay, all the content that ChatGPT or Dali or any of these other platforms have produced, feed it back into the model and then learn from yourself again. I'm guessing that's what it will go back again. No, I think, it, I think it will improve. But I think, I mean, it's, a, it's another case of, I think in many, which I, I ended up thinking of saying about big data and yeah. like, actually it could do amazing things, but a lot of what people are trying to use it for now is not what you should be using it for more. Uh, but it could be doing some other really exciting stuff. And I think the LLMs are a bit the same, that what they can do, what they're really good at, I think is great, but trying to get it to produce original stuff or, or trying to use it as a reliable lookup source, just it's just going to end a disaster because it will give you... I hear about some college libraries where students go in asking for help to find a book uh, and the book doesn't exist. The librarians go, well, you know, where did you find this reference? And like, well, I asked ChatGPT. <laughs> and it just invented a whole book. <laughs> Which, but plausible, because yeah. it was maybe like, maybe they will name an author in the field yeah. and produce the title of a book that could have been written in the field. Well, I was, that is like, they just sit on the train down here, but well, ChatGPT, they said, write me a sonnet in the style of Shakespeare and just gave it a couple of themes or another sonnet or yeah. like time it, hang it a bit. It'll probably do a pretty good job of it. Because it's got enough of a data set on what Elizabethan English sounded like and what Shakespeare's style was that like you can recreate it. I'm wondering when you can throw that on a head. Oh, no. An English professor saying, we found the Yeah, well, it would be. Because we're sitting here at Birkbeck College and I was talking to one of the philosophy professors and he said, yes, last year they had a big problem with a lot of oh, yeah. students using ChatGPT to produce uh, undergraduate essays. And I said, well, how could you tell what they were? And he said, well, it was just obvious because like, it was not written like that student would have written it. Yeah. But the thing is, if you've got a first year student, the first time you've ever seen them, then how do you spot them? How they're oh, working on the sport? But I think what will happen is I think it will be a market pressure on the AI companies is they've got to put a watermark on their conflict somewhere, somewhere on a digital watermark of some of sort. Well. And they don't have to do it on the, the images because obviously you can generate an image yeah. and it could be spread and go wild on the internet and kind of ruin people's reputations or cause monetary damage to people. Uh, but on the, on the text outputs, yeah, I think they probably need to kind of embed some kind of watermark in there. I'm not saying right now, this is... Well, the flip side might be that, in fact, universities change the way they assess students mm-hmm. and go, well, okay, well, we need we obviously need a way of assessing student where we know it's how much is this student understood mm-hmm. rather than expecting to be able to judge that from a piece of work that they've produced in I'm my there. cynical mind immediately goes to well, business one the business is that's a whole other conversation it is indeed okay so that was the big data book and now you've got a new one coming out technology is not a problem that's quite converse to what people are <laughs> saying at the moment everyone's saying well, technology is a massive problem and it's all doom or gloom well yes exactly that's the yeah and that was kind of slightly what I was reacting again so it started off uh, it started off that I thought I was going to write much more of a follow-up. So big data does size matter was very much like, well, okay, here's here's a snapshot of when people talk about big data, what do they mean, what is it, how does it work, what are people using it for, what could people be using it for, here's some of the pitfalls, pretty yeah. soon was. And I thought, okay, well, I'm really interested in the way it's used to gather data on each of us and profile each of us and target us with things supposedly just for us. So I'd like to look into that more. So I started digging into that. 
And I just, I became less interested in how that is done, clever as it is, and more interested in why it's done. Why is everything personalized now? Mm. And obviously part of the answer is, well, because we've got technology that can do it and increasingly can do it really easily. But that's not enough of an answer, really. I think so. I just started to zoom out and yeah. look at the, uh, the, the society we live in and that us and what drives us as human beings. And think, well, in a way, it's the least surprising thing because yeah, you've got the technology that's capable of automatically collecting the data, building a profile, chucking things at your profile. But we also live in a society where we're more and more obsessed to ourselves and how other people see us. Yeah, and with our identities and we'll be recognized for the person we feel ourselves to be. And then when you think about that, you think, okay, and you've got technology that can basically automate that process of recognizing you and reflecting your identity back to you. Why wouldn't that be the technology that starts to take over everything in society? Because it's feeding into our current cultural obsession with ourselves. So that's why... That's why the book is called Technology is Not the Problem, because it's not that it's like, no, everything's sweetness and light. It's like, well, this is problematic sometimes. I mean, sometimes it is. I'm a big fan of some of it. It's not that there's not a problem. It's that, unfortunately, we can't just blame the technology and go, you know, I'd love to have control of my life, but the, the seductive algorithms have control of me. It's like, no, I'm sorry. It's, the problem is us. Yeah. The problem is our obsession with ourselves. And as long as we keep, trying to feed that need for recognition, yeah. then the technology is just going to step up and go, well, I can automate that for all. Exactly, yeah. We'll find your solution to a problem you didn't, didn't know existed. That's, yeah, because I see, obviously, I see the lens of technology through my children and reporting oh. daughter. They're constantly taking selfies, and I don't think they ever take a selfie without a filter. Oh, yes. What image are you trying to protect them? What, what are you trying to see back? Because it's not really you, so we to know. <laughs> no, but it's but it, it except that the more our social lives happen through technology mm. and social media, the harder it becomes to say that's not the real you. You're the real you because if you think, I mean, certainly, I think teenagers now. I mean, increasingly more all of us. It's adults. We relate to each other as much through social media as face to face. I mean, I think you and I first got to know each other on. Twitter, right? Is it nice? Exactly. I, I have a number of friends that I made through social media, yeah. and for teenagers more so. So, who are we to say that, like your physical daughter sitting in the kitchen with you, is more real than the person she's projecting yeah. through social media to her friends and her peer group? Because, come on, think back to when we were teenagers, right? Yeah. And you experiment with like your your hairstyle, and maybe it's like you changed your name that your friends called you something cooler, and you're, wore different outfits and you, you did kind of reinvent yourself yeah. and you'd have for to, your peer group. You'd have to wait till you walk through the school gates for the uh, uh, being back of the together whether it's a good idea or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas on social media, I you could so. do this continuously in little tweets like, oh, did people like this? No, okay, well, maybe I'll go the other way. Yeah. So, yeah, you can see it's a problem, but it's, well, it probably dips into your kind of philosophy work like you're doing now. Is all right, okay, what makes us human then? Are, are we, are we, changing ourselves are we searching for deeper meaning we're looking for the gratification of, of others around us or do we need whether that's some kind of spiritual grounding before you can be contemplating yourself but then how do you develop that in this world how do you avoid how do you go a, a complete luddite and just kind of cut yourself off from the world and say right no tv no i think it's kind of 
got to be your own maturity and your own growing and learning experiences. Actually, no, like the technology is there for a specific reason, like, but also these are the people that you know, I have in my life. These are the people I want. These are, these are things I like doing away from and then like. Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think the answer is not to get rid of the technology. I mean, it would just be. I think it's. I, think I quote something in the book. There's a Chris Bale from Duke University who runs a thing called the Polarization Lab, and they were studying uh, polarization of political views, especially in social media. And he had this. First, we had this moment when Trump was elected because he was American. He was like, "How can this have happened? I don't know anyone who's going to vote for Trump." And then he had the self awareness to go. Okay, so this maybe is a problem with me and the way I relate to the world. It must be a filter bubble. So he went and his lovely went and did research with actual humans interacting with each other on social media. He says, I shall break them out of their filter bubble and then they will come to understand each other. And that and it didn't happen. Right. He basically he found that people dug in because they were on social media to build their identity. Yes. And so he has this lovely quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like if we got rid of all social media tomorrow, our lives would become much more inconvenient. Uh, but the but the problem would remain, and and I'm saying something rather similar. I think that actually technology can be really good, really useful, and it can help us communicate with each other. We have to step back a bit and ourselves take responsibility for finding meaning in our lives that doesn't depend on constant reassurance that other people see us the way we want to be seen, mm. and just be more more outward focused, like instead of constantly looking at our own digital reflection, okay? but never mind what I want to be seen as. What do I want the outside world to be like? What changes do I need to try and push for in the outside world that will make the world a better place? Yeah. And it's that ironic thing of actually it's when you're outwardly focused that you have more meaning in your life and you're happier and more fulfilled. Yeah. Whereas if you're constantly looking at yourself, well, I don't know. I've never met a person who was completely focused on themselves who was actually happy and fulfilled. <laughs> no, I don't think that whatever, however old you get, that's kind of the the, uh, the journey of life, isn't it? You never quite get there. You just start, no matter how you, how much you try, and then you see on social media again, but you see twenty one year olds, twenty guys in their early twenties. This is my perfect life. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't lived me. <laughs> yeah, you got years to go. Yeah. So. So technology is not the problem. When's that due to be out? That is out, Casey. I'm, I should be plugging this. I'm being very slack. It's, it is published by HarperCollins on May the 23rd, 2024. Awesome. Uh, available in all good books. Exactly. <laughs> and it's probably some bad ones. You haunted them And I will be doing the audio book as well. Okay, so if you're the kind of person that likes to listen to things, you can get yeah. however many hours of me reading my own words aloud. I love the lazy generation. I don't like books without pictures, I'm afraid. There's no pictures. I think I've pushed, well, there'd be a photo of me in the back cover. Well, you have to wait for the audiobook. Oh, okay. okay. I can definitely download and listen to that whilst I'm uh, cleaning or cooking or doing the lawn. Was it May? Yeah, the lawn time. <laughs> I'll be taking care of that. So, finally, a couple of questions. I know you're a big Liverpool fan to Mandra, and uh, we've had the recent news of Jürgen Klopp leaving at the end of the season. Oh, we'll take a moment. <laughs> Lots of tears and wailing in the Hearts household. So, a couple of Final questions. Are we going to win the league? Well, I mean, touching wood, it's looking right at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> and and there is suggestion that it's like, oh, we're going to do one, do it for, for Jurgen. Yeah. But interestingly, related to the to the the thing we were talking about is Liverpool is one of the more data driven clubs. It's in the a, yeah. They have a whole team like using the data to work out what they should be doing next. And so a lot of people are saying, 
they're going to use data to find Jurgen Klopp's replacement. I'm yet to track down somebody who can give me the inside skinny on this, but... Hmm. I'd be aware. Okay. I'm thinking of the metrics that you'd use to do that. Yeah. Who's <laughs> one something that's going lowest points per time? But I, I'm trying to get my hat around, uh, sorry, my head around FST's thinking process. So they were the thing. They were the thinking most bang for your book. Yeah. Uh, which is what they had under Young uh, under the previous regime, Michael Edwards and what they were purchasing and the players they purchased because I don't think anyone's got a better hit rate and success rate than him. I know. Uh, so on that, who do you think is going to replace him? <laughs> okay, I don't know is the answer to that. I don't, I'm still looking to find out, track down the data person. I'm buying them. She'll be Alonso former Ed. Well, yes, actually, yeah, no, he's um, yeah. If you if you if you said to me you can now have a free bet on anybody, mm. I guess that would be Xabi Alonso, yeah. just because that's he's most talked about. But you know, can pick up a block, he goes. I hope not, because we didn't share the same birthday. So. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that's what kind of phrase on Xabi Alonso's birthday. I'm treated to him. That's about it. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Commander. It's really appreciated. No, it's uh, been a pleasure. Best of luck with the book, and we'll plug that as much as we can on the daily platform. And we'd love to have a follow-up conversation on uh, all things data and AI in the future. Yes, and good luck with the podcast. Awesome. Thank you very much.